It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussion of animal abuse and dog fighting. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under the age of 13. The estate on 1915 Moonlight Road in Surrey County was built to avoid unwanted attention. With high fencing that kept the house hidden from the prying eyes of neighbors, or theoretically, the police. The estate had a name, but not one it advertised. It was called the Bad News Kennels. A group of men assembled on the second floor of a shed in the backyard of the property, excited about what they were about to witness. It was fight night. The two combatants were not human beings. They were two male pit bulls, trained to fight to the death. One of them, Big Boy, was owned by the Bad News Kennels, who also set the purse for the fight. The two dogs were led into a pit, each held tightly on a leash by their owners. The dogs were already growling and baring their teeth, itching to do as they were trained. Finally, at the referee's signal, the owners let their dogs loose. They sprinted at each other. The fight began. The men cheered as they watched Big Boy and his opponent viciously tear each other apart. It was an appalling and brutal spectacle. The fight only took a few minutes, ending when the visiting dog, grievously injured, finally quit. The losing owner took his injured dog out of the building and put the poor creature out of its misery. Meanwhile, upstairs, the celebration continued. Big Boy's owners weren't in it for the money. They were more invested in the pride of having trained a winning dog. But there was another, more secret reason that the money won in the fight didn't matter. What most in the room didn't know was that one of Big Boy's owners, one of the organizers of the entire dogfighting ring, was one of the biggest star athletes in the world. Michael Vick didn't need the money. He was in it purely for the sport. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're discussing Michael Vick. 
the star quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, whose life fell apart when it was revealed that he owned a kennel involved in a dogfighting ring. This week, we'll explore the beginnings of Vic's career and his involvement in the dogfighting operation. Next week, we'll cover how his involvement was revealed and the consequences that Vic faced, both as a player and a person. Michael Vick was born on June 26, 1980, in Newport News, Virginia. The town was nicknamed Newport Nam, a reference to Vietnam, accurately reflecting how young Vick viewed his home, a war zone. Vick lived with his young parents in the Ridley Circle housing project, surrounded by violence. The sound of gunfire was a constant reminder of the crime and danger that besieged him at all times. Over the course of his childhood, he became accustomed to it. Compared to the other kids in Newport News, however, Vic's home life was almost idyllic. He lived with both of his parents as well as three siblings. Their grandmother also lived with them, and she made sure to introduce Vic to two things, Christianity and football. When Vic was seven years old, his grandmother turned on the TV to watch her favorite football team, the Washington Redskins. The game fascinated young Vic. Its intensity, its complexity, and its impressive displays of athleticism. At seven years old, he declared to his grandmother that he wanted to play professional football. He wanted to be one of the helmet-wearing men he saw on TV. But not long after his football obsession began, Vic was introduced to another activity that he would become fascinated by. In a field by the housing project where he lived, eight-year-old Vic stumbled across a group of kids watching a dogfighting match. Dogfighting was a common pastime among the older kids and adults in Newport News. Despite the fact that Vic had a deep fear of unknown dogs, he found the violence and brutality compelling. It mirrored the violence that surrounded him in Newport News, but in a small-scale and controlled way. Vic was fascinated. He began training his dogs to fight with his friend's dogs, encouraged and spurred on by older kids. Eventually, however, Vic lost interest as he became too busy pursuing his first love, football. Vic first played as a tight end, but he learned that he hated blocking and tackling. He avoided contact whenever he could. After one season, the coach moved him to quarterback. With his mother in the crowd, nine-year-old Vic took his first ever snap as quarterback for the Boys and Girls Club Spartans in the first game of the next season. He wanted to make it count. He took the ball from the center, stepped back a few feet, and heaved the ball as far as he could in the direction of an open receiver. Vic was too short to even see if his pass was caught. He simply stood in the backfield waiting. After a moment, he heard the sound of cheers from his teammates. The pass wasn't just caught, it was a touchdown. Coaches and players swarmed Vic as his mother and the other parents in the crowd cheered. It was his first taste of football glory, and he was determined to have more. Vic spent as much time as he could playing football either for his Pop Warner youth football team or in pickup street games. It was more than just a hobby or a pastime. It was an escape from the constant violence that was always threatening to drag him down. 
One of his best friends was his teammate, a quarterback named Abdullah McLean, who was nicknamed P-Head. McLean and Vic dreamed of playing high school football together and maybe even college. But those dreams were cut short when McLean was gunned down on the street outside a supermarket. Vic later said that his life changed completely the day that his friend was killed. Suddenly, the violence and danger that had surrounded him throughout his life felt real in an entirely new way. He could no longer ignore it or let it fade into the background. So Vic put his head down and focused on football, which he saw as the best way to escape the projects. By the time he was a teenager, he'd garnered the attention of several coaches who recognized his raw talent and believed he had what it took to get a college scholarship. Vic became known for his unique throwing motion, his running ability, and his adeptness at improvisation to extend plays and avoid sacks. His longtime aversion to contact became a key skill that he built his play style around. By his senior year of high school, college scouts were beginning to take notice. Before one game in the fall of 1997, 17-year-old Vic was told that two scouts from Virginia Tech were interested in offering him a scholarship, though it depended on his performance in the game. It wasn't just any game, either. Vic's Warwick High was facing its crosstown rival, Hampton, who had their own star quarterback named Ronald Curry. Curry had been the toast of the town for the previous three seasons, leading his team to three straight state championships. He received all the attention from local newspapers and scouts, while Vic lived in his shadow. This single game was Vic's chance to prove himself to the college scouts, to the local reporters, and to himself. Vic put on a showcase of his skills, throwing for 300 yards and a touchdown while rushing for 40 and another touchdown. Unfortunately, he was the only thing that went right for the Warwick High varsity football team that day as Hampton beat them easily 34-16. After the season, Curry was named National Player of the Year by Gatorade and was a coveted prospect by college scouts. However, on that one day in the fall of 1997, Vic had a better day than Ronald Curry. In the eyes of the Virginia Tech scouts who were watching, that was all that mattered. Five teams offered Michael Vick a scholarship in his senior year of high school. While there were other tempting offers, like taking Donovan McNabb's mantle at Syracuse or playing immediately as a freshman at Clemson, Vick ultimately decided to follow his high school coach's recommendation and accept a scholarship from Virginia Tech. Vic viewed this as an opportunity to create his own legacy and, finally out of Ronald Curry's shadow, become the best. In choosing Virginia Tech, Michael Vick agreed to spend his freshman year as an inactive redshirt player, learning the college game and preparing physically and mentally for the challenge of Division I football. His first year at Virginia Tech, Vic dutifully studied film and learned the playbook in anticipation of competing for the starting quarterback job as a sophomore. Vic always viewed himself as being physically ready, but the redshirt year helped him put the pieces together and become a complete player. By the time his sophomore year came around, he was ready and easily won the starting quarterback job. On Saturday, September 4th, 1999, 
19-year-old Michael Vick played his first college football game, an away game against James Madison University. In front of thousands of opposing fans, Vick took the field on the very first drive of the game. The coach called a pass play. Vic would have a chance to show what he could do on the first play. Despite all the preparation that had gotten him to this moment, Vic panicked when the center snapped him the ball. The play was designed to be a deep pass, and he had an open receiver. But instead, Vic threw the ball directly into the ground. It was the first day that the spotlight was on him, and the entire stadium saw Vic's mistake. His first drive as quarterback fell apart quickly and led to a punt. The wait between offensive possessions had never felt longer. Vic stood anxiously on the sidelines, itching to get back on the field and make up for his mistakes. The second possession, Vic finally got to show off his athletic ability when he rushed for a three-yard touchdown, his first ever score as a college football player. That set the tone for the rest of the game. In his very next possession, the coach called a design run play for Vic, leading to a 54-yard touchdown. By the end of the second quarter, Vic added a 60-yard pass that put them inside their opponent's five-yard line. The coach called another run play for him. Vic took the snap and rushed up the middle, vaulting over a defender and into the end zone. He had scored his third rushing touchdown of the half, a shockingly dominant performance from someone playing college football for the first time in his life. However, that third touchdown came at a price. When he vaulted into the end zone, he had landed awkwardly and sprained his ankle, which caused him to miss the second half. Thanks to his three touchdowns, though, the team had already established a commanding lead and ended up winning 47-0. Vic had looked good and flashed his seemingly endless potential. When he returned from his injury, Michael Vick was soon a national sensation. After blowing out dominant programs like Clemson, Virginia, and Rutgers, the Virginia Tech team was undefeated in the regular season. Vick finished third in the Heisman Trophy voting, an astonishing finish for someone finishing their first year as a starter. To cap the season, the team faced the number one ranked Florida State team in the BCS National Championship. 80,000 fans packed the Louisiana Superdome on January 4th, 2000 to watch the national championship game between Virginia Tech and Florida State. It was almost double the attendance that Vic was used to in home games back in Virginia. The crowd inside the stadium was so loud, Vic could barely hear himself think, which only compounded the pressure he already felt. Vic didn't just feel the pressure of performing for himself on the biggest stage in college football. He felt the pressure of putting Virginia Tech truly on the map and winning the school's first national championship. Even though Virginia Tech was ranked second in the nation and had gone undefeated in 11 games that season, they still weren't seen as a football powerhouse. Their competition, Florida State, was a dominant program that had been number one in the country six times in the last two decades. Vic stepped onto the field and heard the deafening roar of the crowd. He knew that this was the culmination of his entire life up to that point. Everything, from his beginnings as a quarterback on his Pop Warner team, to his struggle to make a name for himself in high school, had led Vic to this game. 
He was going to go out onto the field and show the entire country what he could do. Coming up, Michael Vick and his Virginia Tech team play in the national championship game. Now back to the story. On January 4th, 2000, Virginia Tech and Florida State met for the BCS championship game at the Louisiana Superdome in New Orleans. Virginia Tech was led by their 19-year-old superstar redshirt freshman quarterback, Michael Vick, who was finishing off his first season as a college player. As soon as the game started, however, the pressure got to Vick, and so did the tenacious Florida State defense. The Tech offense failed to get anything going in their first three possessions. Meanwhile, the Florida State offense scored two touchdowns. Finally, at the tail end of the first quarter, Virginia Tech broke through. Vic completed a 49-yard touchdown pass to put his team on the board. Florida State answered right back as the second quarter began, scoring another touchdown. After another stalled drive by Virginia Tech, Florida State scored another. Before Vic could really get into a rhythm in the game, his team was down 28-7. to Vic knew he had to do something dramatic to get his team back into the game before halftime. With only a few minutes left, Vic took the ball and did what he did best, ran, gaining 43 yards. The Florida State defense just couldn't keep up with him as he sprinted and zigzagged down the field. When the safety finally tackled him, Vic had put his team right in the Florida State red zone. After a couple more plays picked up moderate yards, Vic took the ball himself and ran the final three yards for a touchdown. The first half hadn't gone well for Vic and Virginia Tech, but they at least had momentum headed into halftime. The two teams traded punts in the third quarter before Vic completed a 28-yard pass leading to a field goal. The Virginia Tech defense stayed strong forcing another Florida State punt. Vic and the offense scored again, tightening the gap to 28-23 after a failed two-point conversion. It was a one-possession game. Virginia Tech's defense came through again, catching an interception and setting up the offense with good field position. With two minutes to go in the quarter, Vic handed off the ball to the running back, who pushed through the defensive line and into the end zone for a touchdown. Vic and Virginia Tech had done it. They'd scored four touchdowns in five possessions and had come all the way back from a 21-point deficit to take the lead 29-28. to Unfortunately, the Virginia Tech defense couldn't hold Florida State for much longer. The vaunted Seminole offense answered with a long touchdown drive. Virginia Tech failed to do anything on their next possession, and Florida State scored yet another touchdown to seal the game and the national championship. Virginia Tech lost 46-29. Although the season hadn't ended the way Vic wanted, he still accomplished more than he could have possibly dreamed of. By leading his team to one of the biggest stages in American sports, he had put himself on the map and had become a minor celebrity. Fans were now coming up to him asking for autographs before games. He was on the cover of magazines and invited to televised ESPN events. As the 2000 season began, 
All eyes were on the 20-year-old Michael Vick and the endless speculation that he could win the Heisman Trophy. Through the first two-thirds of the season, Vick was obsessed with the Heisman chase, and he looked like a frontrunner. Virginia Tech was once again undefeated, and the team appeared to be headed back to the national championship game. But eight games into the season, Vick suffered a high ankle sprain that kept him limited for the rest of the year. He chose to view the injury as a result of being too focused on winning the Heisman, of being too focused on how he was perceived by fans and sports writers, rather than being focused on simply playing the game. Without a healthy Vic, the Virginia Tech team wasn't able to replicate the success it enjoyed the previous season. In the final game of the season, they lost to Miami and were not chosen to play in the national championship game. Later that month, Vic finished sixth in that year's Heisman voting. After his sophomore year season, 20-year-old Vic had a momentous decision to make. He could either return to school for another year or declare himself eligible for the NFL draft and go pro. It was the toughest decision of Vic's young career. While he loved playing for Virginia Tech, he had an opportunity to go pro, be a first-round pick, and immediately start making money for his family. What also weighed on him was the fact that he had the chance to be the first black quarterback drafted first overall. Given his injury history, he might not have the same value if he stayed in college. On January 11, 2001, Michael Vick announced his intention to enter the NFL in a press conference, supported by his mother and his coach from Virginia Tech. The road from declaring for the draft to draft day itself was a long one. Vick first attended the NFL Combine in the spring, where he interviewed with NFL coaches and executives and went through some physical and psychological tests. Then he had his pro day at Virginia Tech, where he displayed his athletic ability, running a 40-yard dash in 4.33 seconds and put his throwing arm on display. Vick was so amped up that he broke a receiver's finger with one of his throws. His combine and pro day performances just confirmed what analysts and other coaches knew, that Vic was a once-in-a-generation quarterback prospect and would likely be a number one overall selection. Leading up to the draft, Vic had assumed he would be drafted by the San Diego Chargers. They had the first overall pick and needed a quarterback. Vic had both a meeting and a workout with the Chargers, both of which he thought went well. The Chargers felt differently. First and foremost, they were worried about Vic's health. His relatively short stature of six feet and his run-heavy play style were considered risks. But they were also worried about the people Vic surrounded himself with. Unlike other prospects, Vic chose to bring his friends to his workouts, which seemed unprofessional. His entourage, mostly childhood friends from Newport News, were hard partiers and rough around the edges. The Chargers were concerned about the kind of influence they would have. So, rather than take a risk on Vic, the Chargers traded their first overall pick to the Atlanta Falcons, another team in need of a quarterback. On April 21, 2001, in Madison Square Garden in New York City, the Atlanta Falcons officially selected 20-year-old Michael Vick as the first overall pick in the NFL draft. His entire family looking on, 
Vic was overwhelmed by emotion as he walked onto the stage, donned an Atlanta Falcons hat and jersey, and posed with the NFL commissioner. His childhood dream was coming true. Vic quickly signed his contract with the Falcons and received a $3 million signing bonus. It was more money than Vic had ever dreamed of or knew what to do with. He spoiled his family, buying a house for his mother and gifting his siblings $30,000 each. Along with that signing bonus came great expectations from the Falcons team and the city of Atlanta. He began the 2001 season as the backup to veteran quarterback Chris Chandler, but it wasn't long before Vic saw game action. He made his NFL debut on September 9, 2001 against the 49ers. Although he only appeared in two drives and went 0 for 4 in pass attempts, he still showed the Falcons fans glimpses of why they drafted him when he scrambled for 25 yards late in the third quarter to set up a field goal. By the end of the 2001 season, Vic had established himself as the starting quarterback of the Falcons. Although the season hadn't been successful, they finished 7-9 and and missed the playoffs, they were improving from their back-to-back 5-11 and 4-12 and records in 1999 and 2000, respectively. The future was bright for Vic and the Falcons. However, behind closed doors, the same warning signs that kept the Chargers away from Vic were beginning to rear their ugly heads. In the spring of 2001, before his rookie season began, Vic returned to his hometown of Newport News and reconnected with an old friend named Tony. Tony was one of the older teenagers that had first introduced Vic to dogfighting when he was a kid. Now, as adults, Tony showed Vic that dogfighting wasn't an informal skirmish between dogs on a field by the housing project. It was an organized fight to the death. Just like when he was a kid, Vic found himself both repelled and fascinated by the brutality on display. Something about the primal violence of dogfighting compelled him, even though he recognized its essential cruelty and its illegal nature. Because it had been introduced to him as a child, and because he didn't personally know of anyone who faced any legal consequences from it, Vic was able to justify and normalize it. He told himself it wasn't that bad, and that the dogs, mostly pit bulls, were bred to fight. It was in their nature. So on that day in 2001, Michael Vick made a spur-of-the-moment decision that would define his next six years. He told Tony that he wanted in on the dogfighting ring. Tony told him that first, he needed some real fighting dogs. So over the course of the next few weeks, Tony and Vic bought five dogs and an estate from which to run his operation. So, just as Vic's career as a professional football player was getting started, so was his double life as an illegal dogfighter. When we come back, Vic's difficult personal life begins to affect his life on the field. Now back to the story. In the fall of 2001, 21-year-old Michael Vick's career was looking bright. He had finally made his NFL debut with the Atlanta Falcons and proved he could be the star player that he was always projected to be. But in his personal life, Vick was facing some unexpected hurdles. 
In October of 2001, Vic's girlfriend Tamika discovered that she was pregnant. Their son was born in the summer of 2002, but by that time their relationship had deteriorated. The dissolution of the relationship was ugly. Vic became less focused on football. He spent his time off the field drinking and partying instead of practicing. A protracted and nasty custody battle with Tamika proved to be a constant distraction. He didn't know where his son was actually living throughout the season, which weighed heavily on him. Eventually, after a long back and forth, Vic and his ex-girlfriend agreed to a joint custody agreement. On top of football, Vic was also living a double life as a dog fighter. With the help of an old childhood friend named Tony, he had bought several dogs and a place to house them, which he christened the Bad News Kennel. The kennel included a house for his friends to live in, a barn in the backyard to house the dogs, and a fighting area. Vic was obsessed with the dog fighting operation, learning everything he could from Tony about how to scout and train dogs. Although he could only stop by his kennel once a week on his off day from the Falcons, he was more focused on learning the ins and outs of training pit bulls than he was focused on football. This might have been because, in some ways, dogfighting allowed Vic to be a coach and owner, two positions of power he didn't have on the football field. Although he knew that dogfighting was illegal and cruel, Vic simply didn't care. He thought he was untouchable and had nothing to worry about. As long as he continued to do a good job of keeping his lives separate and successfully kept it a secret from his coaches and teammates as well as from the NFL, he was safe. In spite of these distractions, his play on the field remained good. In his second season with the Falcons, and his first as a starting quarterback, he led the team to a 9-6-1 record and sent them to the playoffs. In the wild card game, Vic and the Falcons beat the heavily favored Green Bay Packers to advance to the divisional round. There, however, they were blown out by the Philadelphia Eagles to end their season. Vic's third season was a lost one. He broke his leg in a preseason game, which kept him out of action until the 13th game of the season. In his absence, the Falcons regressed, only winning two games out of the 12 they played without Vic. Although Vic's late-season return galvanized the team, leading them to win three of four to end the season, it was too late. The team missed the playoffs. Meanwhile, Vic's friends, as the Chargers worried they might, began causing problems. In early 2004, two men were arrested in Virginia for selling marijuana out of a truck registered to Vic. Vic claimed complete ignorance of what the men, friends of friends, were doing and didn't face any consequences. Later that same year, while going through airport security, one of Vic's friends stole a watch that belonged to one of the security personnel. Vic took the blame, claiming he had grabbed the watch, but then didn't return it. Airport security complained to the Falcons, who pressured Vic to return the watch. Vic only did after nearly a week delay. The Falcons were concerned about Vic's entourage and the problems they were causing. The head coach of the Falcons sat Vic down and told him he needed to stay out of trouble. It didn't sink in. But as long as Vic continued to be productive on the field, the Falcons were willing to live with it. And in the 2004 season, 24-year-old Vic proved he was worth the trouble. 
Healthy for the whole season, he set records for passing and rushing as a quarterback on the way to an 11-5 record and a playoff berth. After stomping the St. Louis Rams in the divisional round by a score of 47-17, the Falcons headed to the NFC Championship game, a rematch against the Philadelphia Eagles, who ended their last playoff run. On Sunday, January 23, 2005, a crowd of over 67,000 people packed into Philadelphia's Lincoln Financial Field in 21-degree weather to watch the Falcons take on the Eagles. The winner went to the Super Bowl, where either team would have the opportunity to win their franchise's first championship. The game began uneventfully, with Vic's Falcons punting on their first possession and the Eagles giving up a turnover on downs. A bad punt on the Falcons' second possession gave the Eagles great field position, and they took advantage. The Eagles handed the ball off to their running backs and rushed down the field to score a touchdown, taking the lead. Vic and the Falcons took the field knowing they had to score to stay in the game. They couldn't risk falling behind against this tough Eagles defense. So Vic led a long six-minute drive from their own 30 to the Eagles' two-yard line, rushing for 20 yards along the way. But the drive stalled in the red zone. On third and goal, Vic was sacked for a loss of two yards. The Falcons had to settle for a field goal. The Eagles scored on their next drive. With five minutes left in the half, the Falcons marched down the field thanks to a 15-yard penalty against the Eagles and a successful 31-yard pass. Running back Warwick Dunn ran the ball in for a touchdown. The Falcons were down by four points going into halftime, but Vic felt as though they had finally found a rhythm on offense and were well-positioned to come back in the second half. They were not. The second half of the NFC Championship game was a disaster for Vic and the Falcons. Vic was sacked for a loss of nine yards, forcing a punt on their first possession. Then he threw a costly interception on the very first play of the second possession. The Falcons failed to score a single point in the second half. Meanwhile, the Eagles scored 13 unanswered points on their way to a 27-10 victory. Yet again, the Falcons' playoff hopes were dashed by the Philadelphia Eagles. It was another disappointing end for the Falcons, but the season was still an unqualified success, especially for their star quarterback, who was named to his second Pro Bowl. Over 500 miles away from the Falcons' stadium in Atlanta, in Surrey, Virginia, the Bad News Kennels remained fully operational. In the off-season that followed, Vic regularly flew back to participate in the fights. He also traveled with his dogs to fights around the southeast, growing his network of dog fighters. The fights were usually held in a desolate building or out in the countryside to avoid unwanted attention. Vic kept a low profile, not wanting anyone to recognize him as one of the most famous athletes in the country. His friends and associates in the dogfighting world also made sure that Vic was insulated from anything that might cause issues for him professionally. He also tried his best to stay away from the worst parts of dogfighting, specifically the killing of the dogs. When dogs were too injured to fight, or even simply not good enough to fight, they were killed. Vic was never directly involved to maintain plausible deniability, 
but he still gave his blessing to killing dogs that didn't make the cut, usually by hanging or drowning. Vic was sickened by the acts, but also believed they were normal. They were routine parts of training dogs and a necessary evil to continue participating in a sport that he loved. Dogfighting, as he saw it, was just a hobby he did on the side that posed no real risk of affecting his professional life. So he continued to completely disregard the horrible abuse and execution of these innocent animals. And his professional life was reaching its apex. By the end of the 2004 season, Michael Vick was on top of the world. The Falcons rewarded Vick with a massive nine-year, $130 million extension, which made him the highest-paid player in the entire league. He was also the highest-rated player in the history of the Madden video game franchise and had the second-best-selling NFL jersey in the country. However, with increased fame and fortune came increased scrutiny. The past few years of success had put a target on Vic's back, and it wouldn't be long before someone discovered his double life. His hobby would soon ruin his career as a star football player and tear his entire life apart. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Michael Vick's story. We'll follow the unmasking of Vick's dogfighting ring and the fallout of the scandal. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy.